Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Woodlow. Glenn Miller was a trombonist, composer, bandleader, and late 1930s, early 40s musical icon, whose work is utterly impenetrable to me. Not that I mean I can't dissect it and regurgitate some horrific approximation as background music, hence this horrific approximation playing in the background now. I mean in terms of, in the era of the swing orchestra, full of heavy-hitting bands, led by people like Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, and Fletcher Henderson, all bands sure to get everyone up on the dance floor. It was the comparatively restrained, in my opinion polite music, of the Glenn Miller Orchestra that dominated the pop charts like no one else. Culturally, I don't possess the touchstones to judge his music in any meaningful way. I can say, however, the man was a superstar. If you were to go by his 59 top 10 records, of the 17 number one billboard or hit parade records he dropped between 1939 and 1943, he must have been a constant and well-loved presence on the radio. Music charts change their names, what they measure, and how they measure it over time. So you may not see his name alongside Elvis, The Beatles, Madonna, or Drake for that matter. But the guy was a huge star in his time, as big as anyone. He even featured in a couple of Hollywood movies. On 7th December 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The subsequent entry of the USA into World War II changed everything for Miller. At 38 years of age, he was never going to be drafted into the armed forces but he felt he needed to go to do whatever he could to help. Glenn Miller walked away from an income of between $15,000 and $20,000 a week. That's upwards of a quarter of a million dollars weekly in 2022 money. And he enrolled in the army. His civilian band played their last show in Passaic, New Jersey on 27th September 1942, before Captain, later Major Miller, left to head the Army Air Force's dance band. The superstar band leader was off to keep morale high among the troops, a service he carried out with distinction. Now I am leaving a lot of biography out of this today. We are looking at a very, very specific time in Glenn Miller's life. So the following is a very quick rundown. Glenn, with one N, is in fact his middle name. He was born Alton Glenn Miller in 1904 in Clarinda, Iowa. When young, his family moved to Nebraska, then Missouri, then Colorado. He paid for his first trombone by milking cows after school. Upon leaving high school, Glenn moved to LA to become a professional musician. He studied music with a man called Joseph Schillinger, who had developed a structured mathematical system of music theory that I'm told takes years for an already capable musician to master. Before his big break, he cut his teeth playing with several bands and on sessions, as well as playing in the orchestra pits for a couple of Broadway musicals. He married his high school sweetheart, Helen Berger, in 1928. 
The couple were still married in 1944, where we rejoin the tale proper. We pick up our tale on 15th December 1944. The location? An airstrip in Bedford, England. Glenn is due to board a plane to Paris, France, specifically a UC-64 Norseman, a single-engined, tough little craft designed to handle even Arctic conditions. Paris has been liberated by the Allies on August 24th. The war in Europe would slog on till 9th of May 1945, so a large number of soldiers stationed on the continent needed entertainment on Christmas Day. Miller hitched a ride by convincing a friend, an American officer named Lieutenant Colonel Norman Basil, to let him jump in a spare seat. The flight contained just himself, Bessel and a 22-year-old pilot, Flight Officer John Morgan. The rest of the band would arrive safely on a later scheduled plane. Around midday, though an extremely cold, foggy winter day, the call was made it would be safe enough to make the flight that afternoon. This was in spite of the fact that several other flights that day had been cancelled on both sides of the English Channel. Hours later, the Norsemen took off for Paris. No one on their flight was ever seen or heard from again. When a superstar disappears mysteriously, theories, some mad, some not, develop. Today we're looking at some of the many possible deaths of Glenn Miller. Part 1. The Secret Agent Let's start with one of the probably craziest suggestions. The Norsemen did in fact land in Paris that day. The band was supposed to meet up with them on the 18th. But 18th December came and went with no sign of their leader. His compatriots reported him missing, but he was not acknowledged as missing until December 24th, the day before the planned Christmas concert. This was done because he was a spy on a classified mission, and someone higher up was concealing the disappearance for as long as they could. So where was he exactly? What was he doing? In this timeline, not so much spying as diplomacy. The theory has it he had been secreted away to the front, to meet with high-ranking Nazis, to discuss a peace treaty between the USA and Germany. Perhaps he said the wrong thing, or the Nazis also knew he was a spy all along, or someone just decided it was worth more to the war effort to capture a band leader than discuss peace. What happened to him afterwards? Don't know, maybe Hitler didn't like his rendition of Lily Marlene, and immediately wished he'd snared Dame Vera Lynn instead. This theory usually ends with Major Miller blindfolded in front of a Nazi firing squad. Is this likely? Well, there's no evidence whatsoever that he was a spy. All manner of other plots have been revealed in the years since the war. One example, James Bond writer Ian Fleming discussed using famed occultist Alistair Crowley to ensnare deputy Fuhrer Rudolf Hess, a man who had heavy occult leanings. Before Crowley could be put to use, Hess took off in a plane for Scotland. Completely unsanctioned by Hitler, he hoped to make a peace with Churchill. Hess was arrested and brought back to London by an agent named Brinley Newton-John the father of Australian pop star Olivia Newton-John. Another plan which leaked years after the fact was Winston Churchill's Operation Unthinkable, 
a plan which would have seen the Allies finish the Nazis, then rearm Germany to help defeat the USSR. I just imagine this one being unveiled to a room full of weary politicians, to a chorus of, good lord, Winston, have you lost your mind? Had he ever tried to implement it. Besides this, one only has to look at the Instrument of Surrender documents. The UK, USA and USSR spent the first half of 1944 writing and fine-tuning. The document was a very clear statement of exactly what the Allies needed from Germany to accept their surrender. With the USA so adamant on terms of surrender, would they really go behind the Allies' backs, especially this close to the end of the war in Europe? Theory 1, there is no evidence, and that which can be stated without evidence can be dismissed as easily. Part 2. A Hail of Bombs On the morning of December 15, 1944, the RAF 149 Squadron took to the skies on a mission to bomb the Siegen Railway Yard in Germany. A dangerous task, the slower-moving Lancaster bombers would be escorted by a bodyguard of smaller fighter planes on the mission. 138 Lancaster bombers took to the sky, flying towards their target. When it came time for the fighter planes to launch, it was decided the weather was too dangerous. This was a daylight bombing mission requiring precision. People would see them coming. If they could see them at a distance, the risk of being shot out of the sky increased considerably. Knowing they would take another run of the railway tomorrow, the bombers were called home. The Lancasters had flown out fully loaded with bombs including many 4,000-pound blockbuster bombs, often referred to as cookies. It was extremely risky to land with these in the cargo bay. A long way from a convenient bombing range to offload their cargo, the order was to drop their payloads over the English Channel. Now this seemed risk-free, only an idiot would be out in their weather, and as one they dropped their cookies, creating one hell of a shockwave. An Avro Lancaster NF973, a navigator named Fred Shaw was looking into the fog beneath them when a lone UC-64 Norseman appeared. Flipped upside down, the plane suddenly took a nosedive into the fog. Shaw reported the incident, as did a couple of other airmen, but the RAF chose to do absolutely nothing. Because really, what could you do? Had the plane been hit by friendly fire, there was absolutely no chance of finding the survivors, especially in the middle of a war, in diabolically terrible weather, that to venture out into would be putting others' lives at risk. Of course the weather was much improved the following day. The squadron flew back out, bombing the living daylights out of Segan. You can buy prints online of the December 16, 1944 bombing. There was very little left of the site. Was Glenn Miller accidentally taken out by friendly fire? Possibly. Although questions have been asked whether Miller's plane would have been in the airspace at the same time. Outwardly, it appears so. But a Miller family investigation suggested the Norseman would not have been in that airspace till at least 90 minutes after the bombs were offloaded. Part 3. The Brothel now up front, I don't believe there's any serious evidence for the following theory, but it is often talked about, so here goes. 
The history of sex work in Paris would provide a wealth of material for anyone interested in the topic. In the 13th century, King Louis IX tried to curb prostitution in the city by designating just nine streets where brothels were allowed. The Crown followed his lead in allowing but restricting the practice throughout the following centuries. By the 19th century, brothels were known as Maisons de Tolerance. They were allowed to operate, if run by a female brothel owner, were discreet in the way they carried out business, and if they hung a red lantern in the window when they were open for business. This is where we get the term red light district from. When World War II broke out, Paris alone had 117 such masons. Invading Nazis added to the number of brothels in an extremely problematic way. And though I don't believe this pertinent, I don't know when else I'll ever get a chance to share this information. In 1940, Reinhard Heydrich, easily one of the most sadistic men in history, he was the chief architect of the Holocaust after all. Well, he had a problem. Now, I doubt this guy ever cared whatsoever for the victims if horny Nazis were raping their way through captured territory. He did, however, want to ensure what still equated to rape was safe for his men. Three issues occupied his mind. First, if the men caught venereal diseases, they might be taken off the battlefield. Second, if left to their own devices with the native populations. Several officers may have their heads turned by a modern-day Matahari, some spy on a mission to seduce them. Thirdly, Heydrich, in a moment that tells us far more about Heydrich, I'm sure, than the soldiers necessarily, was convinced if men were banned from sex entirely, they would all turn gay, something the party could not tolerate. So a man considered a cruel, feckless monster even for a Nazi hatched a plan to create a franchise of 500 brothels across occupied territory. Upwards of 34,000 girls and women were press-ganged into sexual slavery. They were regularly tested for VD, the poor woman taken away and shot if unfortunate enough to catch something. Pregnancy would be treated the same way. The Nazis ran 19 brothels in Paris during the war. Now, I doubt it's alleged Glenn Miller was at a Nazi brothel, but it has been alleged he arrived safely, then sought out the services of sex workers among the Red Light District. In the throes of passion, he suffered a massive heart attack and died in the escort's arms. Presented with this tragedy, the top military brass made the decision to hush up the incident. It was bad morale when they needed morale high. This claim started to circulate in English-language newspapers around 1997, after a far-right German conspiracy theorist named Udo Ufkutter wrote an article. He claimed he just stumbled across a classified US military document while writing a book on German post-war spies. As best as I can tell, the alleged document itself has never been published or verified anywhere but a far-right grifter had a book to sell, and any publicity is good publicity, right? But besides this, what happened to Lieutenant Colonel Bessel and Flight Officer Morgan? Did they too drop dead of cardiac arrest at the same brothel? Part 4. Mechanical Failure Sometimes mysteries have simple explanations. The weather was atrocious, so much so, the flights were being cancelled everywhere. 
The Norseman was designed for this kind of weather, but at the end of the day it was a single engine craft. Many aviation experts believe the answer is as simple as ice on the engine brought the craft down somewhere over the English Channel, never to be seen again. Part 5 I have one final theory to share. Do I place much trust in it? It struggles with some of the same issues as the spy and brothel theories. What happened to the pilot and the lieutenant colonel? It is somewhat more believable by virtue of it coming from a family member. Let's overlook for a second the eerily prescient letter he wrote to one of his two brothers on 12 December 1944, stating, Barring a nosedive into the channel, I'll be in Paris for a few days. This could signify something, or just be one of those strange coincidences. I certainly don't know that it reflected something he regularly said to his family when flying out. And if so, how can you weigh the one time he was right against the hundreds that he wasn't? It does, however, lend a little weight to the theory, if taken on face value. Another letter, written to his younger brother Herb, did have his brother wondering if he had covered up the true nature of his death for patriotic reasons. Glenn's letter to Herb, written in mid-1944, stated he was having great difficulty breathing. He was feeling increasingly ill, and despite eating very well, losing a lot of weight. Others near the band leader echoed the sentiment, particularly towards the end of his life. Now my eyes not being the greatest, and live photos of shows in September 1944 often being a little blurry, I think he had lost a noticeable amount of weight prior to his death. Glenn Miller was a smoker from a young age, and some, Herb among them, have suspected he was dying of lung cancer. Their belief is he was secreted away to an army hospital somewhere in Britain, where he was kept isolated from the other patients. For the sake of keeping up morale among the troops, he died, anonymous and alone, in some hospital bed so a heroic narrative could be told to the public. Of course, had he died of cancer, his family were nowhere near. The war, though months from an end, was still being fiercely contested. The Battle of the Bulge kicked off in Belgium and France the day Miller was reported missing. It wasn't terribly safe to travel to his bedside, but at least a final phone call to his family should have been possible otherwise. And of course, having disappeared en route to a mission, a Christmas show, he died a hero and was awarded a Bronze Star posthumously. What happened to Alton Glenn Miller, superstar band leader? trombonist, composer, and war hero. Your guess is as good as mine, and I will leave it up to you to decide, although I suspect the simplest answer the most likely. At risk of a copyright strike, Mr. Miller, play us out.